we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, 19-20. Thanks, Matt. According to Wikipedia, which is the source of all good research, there are at least 15 different kinds of storms. In case you're wondering, here's your list. There are ice storms, there are blizzards, there are snowstorms, there are coastal storms, there are ocean storms, there are fire storms, there are dust devils, wind storms, squalls, gales, thunderstorms, tropical cyclones, which by the way includes hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and the derecho. Now, I'd never heard of a derecho before, so I had to Google it. After watching several YouTube videos, let me just tell you this. If you ever hear a derecho is coming, I'd take cover immediately. We'll just go with that. You can look it up on your own. But as we've walked through this series called My Anchor Holds, we've been discussing the different kinds of storms that show up in our lives. Things that rattle us, things that shake us, things that can drop us to our knees. And it doesn't matter if it's a health diagnosis or if it's an employment issue or even a relational conflict. And some of these things are brought on by a very purposeful cause, some of them by an unknown cause, some of them by accident, and some of them we absolutely bring about on ourselves. James 1, 2 through 4 reminds us that we will face trials of many different kinds. And indeed, even amongst us this morning, there are people struggling in and through many different kinds of trials. And so we are in this series considering Hebrews six nineteen and 20, that we have a sure and steadfast anchor and the book of Psalms so that we can see in practice that our anchor will hold just as it did for David and the other Psalm writers, all the while noting that the Psalms not only give us an anchoring language when we struggle, the Psalms also exemplify struggle for us. They give us examples of struggle. So that, for example, we see David, a man after God's own heart, really struggle with doubt in a way that the Bible seems to say is okay, right? Because it's in the book. It's God's words, God inspiring them. So David is sharing this. And we experience it too. We watch David experience loneliness. We watch David experience isolation. And even when he is at his lowest, and even when everything seems hopeless, because we see all of those situations in the book of Psalms, we see David able to hold on. So we are to be encouraged not only in our struggles, but through our struggles. And to be reminded that we're anchored. To be reminded that we're anchored with a sure and steadfast hope that enters behind the curtain. Because ultimately, he is the only one who can redeem our struggles. Every last one of them. 
So we're in the book of Psalms considering anchors. And this morning we will find ourselves in Psalm 32, looking at a particular kind of storm and a particular kind of anchor that is absolutely crucial for every last one of us. Turn with me now to Psalm 32. The text starts Psalm 32, a maskeel of David. This psalm is attributed to David, and it's called a maskeel. If you don't know what this word means, it's attributed to 12 other psalms. And if you don't know what it means, you're in good company, because nobody knows what it means. So just take some joy in that. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Friends, these are the words of a man who has sinned. A man who knows that he has sinned. A man who knows the impact of his sin. A man who knows the consequences of his sin. And he knows the joy of forgiveness. Most scholars believe that David wrote this psalm after he wrote Psalm 51. If you're familiar with Psalm 51, you should know that Psalm 51 was written as a result of David's sin in 2 Samuel 11. You may know the story. If you don't, here it comes. It starts off in 2 Samuel 11. In the spring at the time when kings go off to battle, David stayed home. And friends, not only did he stay home, he sinned grievously. And he sinned repeatedly, and he sinned without any record of remorse. As Samuel records, one evening David looked off of his roof of his palace and saw a woman that he desired. It's not a good word. He's lusting after her, and so he sends for her. Now, I'm not sure how much you've thought through that story, but when the king sends for you, you don't get a choice. So how excited she was to show up, the text does not say, but my guess is she wasn't thrilled. It goes on to tell you that he sleeps with her. And if the story seems bad, it only gets worse. Because after sleeping with Bathsheba, a woman who is married to an officer in his army, then they find out she's pregnant. So rather than owning up to all of this, David sends for her husband Uriah in an attempt to end it all in an attempt to basically frame it so that he can be passed off as the dad of the baby. And when Uriah won't comply with David's scheme, David has him killed in battle. Now, I suspect some of you know the story, and some of you are familiar with this story, and the challenge we sometimes have is that our familiarity with the stories make it easier for us to swallow the story. But just for a moment, I want us to push through our familiarity to consider his sin and the gravity of his sin. Because even if you take it on face value, even if you don't read into it, you find lust, you find adultery, you find fornication, you find lying, you find manipulation, you find murder. And even conservatively speaking, he broke four of the Ten Commandments. And then he carries on as if he'd never sinned, as if nothing happened. 
He carries on in his little kingdom. And I have no idea what this does to Bathsheba. I have no idea what this whole incident, what how it reeks into her life. But I, I could tell you it probably wasn't fun for her. David is in the midst of a storm that he causes himself. And the story doesn't change until a prophet named Nathan confronts him with a sin a chapter later in 2 Samuel 12. And it's only when he is confronted with a metaphor, with a, a story, a parable of sorts, that David is forced to see the absolute depths of his depravity when he's forced to see his sin. And it's in that moment of being confronted with his sin. It's in that moment of seeing what, it, what it's done to him and what it's done to the people around him that David writes Psalm 51. And the subscript of that psalm confirms it. So if you're willing to place Psalm 32 after Psalm 51, which is pretty reasonable, then what we have here is in Psalm 32 is David actually reflecting back on the whole experience from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 into 12 into Psalm 51. And now here we have David reflecting back and seeing the trials, the challenges of sin, the challenge of hiding sin, the challenge of living with and in sin and the challenge and the complete joy of forgiveness because we can look back on Psalm 51 and see that when he asked for mercy, God showed him mercy. When he asked for a clean heart and a renewed spirit, God gave him a clean heart and a renewed spirit. And when he asked for restoration, God granted him restoration. And now in light of all of this, his grievous sin and the forgiveness of the father, he considers himself blessed because he knows about the true forgiveness of the father. Friends, do you know that because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and because he rose three days later and because 40 days after that he ascended to the right hand of the Father that if you have believed in him, if you have faith in him, all of your sin, all of your grievous, hideous, dirty sin is forgiven. All of it. Completely forgiven. This is Paul's argument in Romans 4 using this text. Listen to this. Romans 4, 4 through 8. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, he believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul quotes the first two verses of Psalm 32 in Romans 4 to substantiate the gospel. Even in the Old Testament, 
that you do not earn forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's his point, Romans 4.4. 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. If you could earn forgiveness, it wouldn't be a free gift. It would make the gospel a lie. But rather, because it's offered to you through faith, you have the gospel. That's what he does here. He substantiates the gospel that we are forgiven, not based on works, not based on good deeds, but based completely on faith, based on belief. And because of that this morning, David proclaims that he is overjoyed. In fact, he is singing that he is blessed because he's forgiven. And his forgiveness did not come from merit. He did not have to earn it. It came from a gracious, merciful, loving God. As David looks back over his past, looks back over all of this, this is what he has to say. This is what he sings. And this becomes the theme of the psalm. Psalm. That when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins just as 1 John 1, 9 testifies. So if you wonder how this psalm fits into our series, well, I'm glad you ask. Because in verse 3, we find his storm. Verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer, Salah. Friends, from the beginning of the story of Second Samuel 11 until Nathan confronts David, over a year of time passed. You know that. Woman gets pregnant, has baby, right? That's, there's time. Time passes. And yet David says nothing. He does not seek forgiveness. He does not confess his sin. But what he does say here to us in Psalm 32 is that it weighed heavily upon him. And it says his bones wasted away. He felt the hand of God heavy on him. What he's telling you, what he's forecasting for you is the storm that he walked through was he couldn't carry the weight of the burden of his own sin. And friends, you and I can't either. Story after story I could tell you. From my own life, from the lives of being a pastor. Whether that's Pam and I getting into a fight, me being a prideful jerk and not wanting to forgive her. And so I lay in bed for like seven hours, but I only sleep for like an hour and a half. And I'm really angry at her the whole time. And I know in my heart that if I just tapped her and apologized, I'd sleep better. But I've just dug in on my pride. Please say I'm not the only one. Thank you. That's like all of us, right? Several weeks ago, I was working out. I work out at a CrossFit gym. We have timed workouts. Time matters in a CrossFit gym. So when you have a timed workout and the thing starts, you've got to get it done before the time ends, Okay. So in the middle of it, I'm doing 30 clean and jerks for time. Pick up the barbell, bring it here, throw it overhead. You have to do it 30 times. It was a heavy weight. Wasn't excited about it. About my seven rep in, I feel a touch on my shoulder. This guy's standing next to me. He says, hey, you're a pastor, right? Yeah. Hey, uh, 
Can we talk afterwards? I've been dealing with something for a while and I can't carry it anymore. Like, dude, we're supposed to be lifting weights like we're timed. It's like, why are we having this conversation? He couldn't bear the weight of his own sin anymore. It started into a multi-hour conversation we've met a couple of times. And, and this happens to me. We can't carry the weight of our own sin and we weren't intended to. 1 Corinthians 11, by the way, testifies to this for us. Paul is writing about the church taking communion. I don't know how much you've dug into the whole part of this passage, but listen carefully to what Paul says about taking communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now primarily this text is warning against an unbeliever participating in the Lord's table, right? It's telling you that if you have not believed in Jesus, that if you pick up a piece of bread and you drink a little cup, proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins, and you haven't actually believed in Jesus, you're actually condemning yourself. Because you're proclaiming something you don't believe. You're saying the solution is true, even though I'm not believing it. But more than that, the text is also a warning to tell everyone that we ought to examine ourselves before we participate. Why? Because if you participate in communion to testify of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and yet you're in rampant, unrepentant sin, you're called to confess it. You're called to turn to the Lord in that moment to confess your sin so that when you proclaim it, You're proclaiming your forgiveness. You're proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ. For if you do not, you're mocking the cross. I can live my own way regardless of the cross. That's your proclamation. Paul says, examine yourself. You want to know sin matters? Keep reading in the text. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Why? Because you know you're guilty and you're proclaiming your own guilt. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. That's Paul writing. That's Paul telling you that your own weight of sin that you can't carry is killing you. And he's not exaggerating. He's telling you the burden of your sin is wearing you out. It's making you sick. And David testifies to that in this 32nd Psalm. So what you have is a warning. Unless you think that this is not complicit with the gospel, it doesn't tie into the gospel, this is how Paul finishes verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Why? Because if you were in an unrepentant sin and you go to the Lord and you ask for his forgiveness, if you're guilty and you turn to him, then you're already forgiven. You're already forgiven. You do not drink judgment on yourself. But if you do not confess, verse 32 says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined 
so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What Paul then testifies to is that God the Father will discipline you like a good son in order to bring you back to repentance. That's why David says, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. That was God's hand pressing on him so that he'd be wooed back to repentance. He'd be wooed back to accept the forgiveness that's offered to him by God. Friends, David writes this 32nd Psalm to celebrate the forgiveness that we receive when we have believed and to warn against the storms that we bring upon ourselves when we don't acknowledge our own sin. Franz de Leach, a 19th century German theologian in his commentary in the Psalms wrote this, He who does not in confession pour out all his corruptions before God only tortures himself until he unburdens himself of his secret curse. Amen. Friends, if you have sin in your life, burdens that you've been carrying around that you've never confessed to the Lord, now I have zero desire in bringing anyone to the point of feeling guilty about anything. For we are all sinners, amen? And we all struggle with it every single day, amen? And we all did stuff yesterday that we've totally forgotten about and haven't confessed about. I'm not talking about that right? Because yesterday I accidentally speeded and it was probably on purpose and it probably broke the law of the land. And that's not what I'm getting to here. Friends, if you have sin in your life that you've never taken to the Lord, be burned no longer. Be tortured no longer. Do not try to live life in the storm, but be anchored in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. And for the rest of this psalm, David will now plead with you to seek his forgiveness. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. David's pointing out to the worst sins that you could ever confess, you could ever commit. He's saying, God, you forgave me of adultery. You gave, forgave me for murder. I took it to you, and I found forgiveness. That simple statement is an acknowledgement of the gospel. That when you sin, when you fall short, you can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, which I've pointed to several times already this morning, says it this way. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. That's the word of God, not Ben's opinion. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've sinned, you take it to God the Father and he will forgive you and clean you up and call you righteous. It's the word of God, not Ben's opinion. 
And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Why? Because he's declared that you're a sinner. And if you say you're not a sinner, you're calling God a liar. And that's not a good statement. His word is not in us. He says, I don't even know you. Friends, this is the gospel. This is 1 John 1. This is Psalm 32. This is the great meta-narrative of the entire scriptures is that you will sin. You will fall short. And when you do, you take it to Jesus Christ and he will forgive you. He will not hold it over your head. He will not make you earn his forgiveness. He will not even make you do some penance as if you could make up for it somehow. He forgives our sin. And we're beckoned to come to him because he knows the burdens we're trying to carry. We're beckoned to come to him so that we'd no longer carry the burden of it. We wouldn't have to carry the weight of it. So we'd know we're forgiven that we are cleansed. David is completely putting before you that if this is your situation, you're in a storm you've completely caused on your own. Can you imagine the weight that came off David when his bones no longer wasted away? Can you imagine the fresh feeling he had to feel when that burden went away? I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse 6. Therefore, in light of all of that, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. This is David pleading for you. That if you are drowning in your sin, if... Your sin is causing storms in your life. If the water is rising, turn to the Lord, for he will be found. And he will preserve you, and he will deliver you. Friends, this is the call to be anchored even in the storms that are caused by our own sin. Be anchored in Jesus Christ. Be anchored in the forgiveness that is offered to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then in these next two verses, David pretty much says, if you don't lean into that, you're an idiot. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now, friends, hear clearly what David says. Don't be a donkey. I could put it in other ways. Don't be ignorant. Don't be a fool. Don't be like a horse or donkey who doesn't understand. 
He's pleading with you. If you are living in sin, if you've got sin in your life you haven't confessed, take it to Jesus Christ, turn to the Lord, repent, and receive the refreshment of the Father. Receive the refreshment of forgiveness. He concludes in verse 10, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This psalm starts with joy and it ends with joy. And in the middle, he gives you the reasons for the joy. That we are all sinners and yet there's forgiveness offered to us through Jesus Christ. It is a complete forgiveness. It is a sufficient forgiveness. It is a healing forgiveness. So that when you have sinned, you don't have to worry about confessing it to God as if he's going to take you out back with a stick. We have a loving father who wants to restore you, who wants to forgive you, who wants to heal you, and who wants to take away the burdens of your sin. That's the gospel. Friends, as we turn to a time of prayer, we'd be remiss if we didn't offer a time of repentance. We'd be remiss if I didn't offer you a time of prayer on your own to seek after the heart of the Father to take sin that's in your life before Him and and take it to the altar and ask Him to forgive you. So that's what we're going to do now. I'm going to give us a quiet couple of minutes for you to quietly reflect, to pray, and to confess sin to our Father. And if you believe for a second he's angry with you for showing up, you're wrong. And if you believe for a second he's displeased with you for coming to confess, Satan is playing with you. For God the Father welcomes repentant sinners each and every time. It's Hebrews 4 that tells us that we enter into the throne room of the Father. We're to come with great joy and expectancy. We're supposed to come to receive the mercy and the grace that we all need. Why? Because we all fall short. So let's turn to the Father and I'll close this up in about two minutes. Father, if there's anyone amongst us who's not believed in the name of your son, Jesus, if there are any amongst us that have not turned to you for salvation, if there are any of us that are still stuck in the muck and the mire of our sin, would you bring us to the point of belief? Belief in the one who would go to the cross to pay the price for our sins. Believe in the one who lived a perfect life and was the perfect sacrifice the once and for all sacrifice who allowed our sin to be imputed into him. He took on our sin. That's what kept him on the cross. We proclaim that in song this morning. Father, his righteousness was imputed into us. Father, because of the death of Jesus, you no longer see us as dirty. You see us as righteous. Father, may we approach you with confidence. May we draw near to your throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find the grace we need in a time of need. Father, every last one of us is a sinner. 
in need of a Savior. And Jesus, you are the sufficient one who died for all of our sins. Father, I ask if there's anyone here who's still in heavy, repentant sin that you continue to weigh on them, to bring them back to repentance, that they would learn that they can't carry it, they can't, they can't carry it, they can't shoulder the burden. Father, refresh us through your gospel. Refresh us through your word. Refresh us through your son. That each and every one of us would find forgiveness. That we really could walk out of here very, very, very thoroughly forgiven people this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.